Okay, next up, one of the favorite things at this course every year is the interactive cases. And uh, we have uh, Raj Gandhi, who's professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and, uh, and Mass General Hospital and a well-known experienced clinician, is gonna lead our thoughtful panel and you through some cases. So uh, we're gonna have some of the other faculty come up and Raj, take over. Thank you, Tripp. Uh, I'll invite to the stage uh, Christine Duran. Christine is at Johns Hopkins. She's an assistant professor of medicine. Christine does really fantastic work, as you're going to hear next, on transplantation in HIV and really interesting work on reservoirs. And I'll also invite up Ken Mayer. Uh, Ken Mayer is professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. He uh, is really one of the world's leaders in HIV prevention, and you're going to hear from him at the end of the day. He's our closer. Uh, he's going to talk about PrEP. But, um, I'm going to ask that for those who came in late, the way we're going to vote is using your phones. Um, maybe we can put up the, the slide that tells you where to text the, the answers to. So the way we'll run this is I'll present a case. These are all cases I've seen at MGH or one of my colleagues has seen in the last year or so. I will ask you to vote, give your thoughts, and then we'll ask the panel for their, for their perspective. So let's go ahead and these are, our, um, these are my disclosures. And these are the um, objectives for this next hour. Okay, so let's start. I'm going to, uh, these are the case topics that I'm going to cover. We're going to talk about who to start. Um, we're going to talk about how to start. We'll talk a bit about when to switch. We'll talk about managing ART. We'll do a couple of prep cases, and we'll end with a surprise. Okay, so here's our first case. This is a 35-year-old man who was diagnosed with HIV in um, 2004. He has a family history of coronary artery disease. Between 2004 and 2009, he had a CD4 count throughout that time of over 1,000, and his viral loads consistently were less than 50. Between 2009 and 2016, he had intermittent viremia, but it was very low level. The highest was 192. And then the last time he was seen by one of my colleagues, his viral load was 112, full stop, and his CD4 was 501. His CD4 to CD8 ratio was 0.82. So would you and this person with very low level viremia and a CD4 count of over uh, 500, would you recommend starting ART? Go ahead and vote. Uh, number one is yes, you would. Number two is no. Number three is only if the CD4 count gets to below 500, that number should be 500, or if this viral load gets to be above 200. And then the last, um, I think, says, um, not sure. Okay, that's, that's a, <laughs> an overwhelming wow. number. <laughs> so it looks like people say yes. Yeah. So I have been giving this question for the last uh, year and a half or two years, and I have seen a, a really marked change in that. I'd like to see what our panel would say. Would you agree with the 97%? This is more than me that it was uh, Friday, <laughs> so what do you think? Yeah, I'm happy to jump in. Um, how could I argue with 97% of you? <laughs> it's not going to happen. I, I think. Um, in general, we all know that we should be at least offering treatment to every HIV-positive person who's not on treatment today. The thing that's compelling about him, and, and the one exception to that rule, are people who are seem to be controlling the infection off meds. So people with normal CD4s who have viral load suppressed to less than 50. And he was in that boat for many years but then it looked like something changed. So he began to have detectable viremia, and his CD4 that was above 1,000 was now in the 500. So although those numbers, if you just saw them for the first time now, you might think a little bit about when to start, clearly it shows that something's going on. 
So his CD4 has gone down, and now he has repeatedly detectable viremia. So I think we should offer him therapy. So I can disagree with the 97%. I actually, <laughs> so I actually answered not sure um, because I do think that it's worth a discussion with the individuals, sort of the pros and cons. Um, I do think one thing that was highlighted in this case was he also has a family history of coronary artery disease. So perhaps, you know, there's emerging data that even in the elite controllers who have no detectable virus, there may be immune activation consequences of inflammation. But I think, again, I would offer treatment, but um, there is some equipoise. And if it's someone who really just doesn't want to take medications and wants to continue close monitoring, you know, maybe the CD4 dropped because he had an upper respiratory viral infection and next month it's going to be back up to 800. So I think it's worth a discussion. I, I think it's important to, to have the conversation with him about his readiness to take medicine for the rest of his life. But, but I do think the fact that we're seeing an increased emergence of cardiovascular complications and oncologic complications as people with HIV are living longer. You know, the trouble is that for studies like the START study in Temprano, there are not enough people like this individual to say definitively. But, but the data really suggests that when you first become infected, there's a real big hit, you know, to the uh, immune system of the gut. You're having chronic endotoxemia, and you're having low-level inflammation. And the, the medications now, um, the current generation, we have at least a decade worth of very good follow-up and not seeing uh, merging toxicity. So I think that the risks and the benefits have really shifted over the past few years for, for one to start sooner. Great. Perfect. Well, I think you hit the highlights. I, I want to, uh, Ken Mayer mentioned um, the START study. Who, well, who was in the START study? Now, we all remember that the START study took people whose CD4 count was over 500, randomized them to either immediate or deferred ART, and we all know that the uh, benefit was substantial, both for AIDS-related events, went down uh, over 70%, and non-AIDS-related events, some of the cardiovascular things that were mentioned, also went down. The greatest benefit were those uh, in those over age 50, those who had a viral load of over 50,000, those who had a low CD4 to CD8 percentage um, uh, uh, ratio, and those who had a high Framingham risk score. Can we apply START to this patient? Well, um, let's remind ourselves who was in START, and Ken kind of alluded to this, but the START trial participants had a median baseline CD4 count of 651. The median HIV RNA was 13,000 with an interquartile range of 3,000 to, uh, to 43,000. Now, Tripp and his colleagues actually recently presented on the start uh, subset that had a viral load of less than 3,000, that lowest quartile. They had about 1,100 such patients. The baseline viral load was less than 400 and about 347 of them. The baseline viral load was even lower, less than 50, in 94 of them. I don't think, unexpectedly, the immediate ART group had greater time with suppressed viremia. That's shown in the graphics on your left. Uh, you can see that um, people who started ART, of course, suppressed, and therefore their time below 50 copies was greater than those people who deferred ART. And they actually um, did an interesting calculation. They said that they would reduce transmission uh, substantially in those people who got immediate ART. But serious clinical events in this subpopulation did not differ between the immediate and deferred groups. So to this day, I checked this a couple of days ago when the new DHHS guidelines came out, significant uncertainty remains about optimal management of elite controllers, and I think that's reflected in what our panelists said and what, what you probably all think. I uh, support kind of the, the pros and cons, the reasons not to start ART. We know that there are some drug toxicities. There's the issue of resistance the cost of ART, and there is no proof that, that it reduces clinical complications. Um, some of the reasons to start ART really have been alluded to. 
people who are elite controllers, if you look at how much virus they have, it's greater than if they were on ART. They have some evidence for greater risk of subclinical atherosclerosis, even hospitalization. They can develop, as I think this patient is going to, a low CD4 count and a low CD4 to CD8 ratio. And there are small trials, but trials that look um, uh, promising that you can reduce that immune activation. So what I do essentially is I kind of think of elite controllers in two buckets. There are some people who are really quiescent. Their CD4 count is very high. They never have a viral load over 50. Um, there are other people, and I think this patient is one of them, who's a bit more active. His CD4 count is dwindling a little bit. He's got um, a slightly decreased CD4 to CD8 ratio. You know that that's normally above one, above one usually around 1.5. Sometimes they have uh, elevated CRPs. And in a study that got published about a week ago from the French, if you have intermittently detectable viremia, like this patient is beginning to have, that predicts loss of control in the next few years. And in a study that was done at Mass General, some of those more active um, elite controllers have a diff different transcriptional profile. They're probably just different people. So I recommend treatment to, to the person like this, um, although I uh, totally take Christine's point that you have to really have a discussion. We don't know that it would benefit him. What is not controversial, what you should never do and what a patient should never do, is if you have a patient who's an elite controller, they have to be monitored because they can lose their elite control. Joe Aaron told me about a patient that was seen at UNC who was an elite controller who fell out of care and eventually uh, presented with a CD4 count of less than 200 pneumocystis pneumonia and died of, uh, of that. So you really have to keep them close to the, close to the chest in terms of keeping them, keeping them in care. Great, okay, so let's go on to a second question, which is, this is a, a patient I uh, got referred about a year ago. He's 29 years old. He got tested for HIV at a local clinic. He had recent unprotected sex with multiple partners. His rapid HIV test was positive. His antigen antibody and confirmatory tests were positive. When he came over, his HIV RNA, his genotype, his CD4 count, BUN creatinine, all his labs were pending. So would you recommend starting ART on the day that this person walks into the clinic? Yes, uh, go ahead and vote. Number one, yes. Number two, no. And number three, it depends. At least for our panel, if they say 56% says it depends. Let's see what our panel says. And if you say it depends, you have to say what it depends on. So, um, Christine, you want to start things off? Sure. I actually was more definitive on this and said yes, but I, I agree with you all that it, it does depend, again, on that conversation with the patient. Um, but I think there now is emerging data to show, one, you can successfully do a rapid start of ART, and there's several reasons that that might benefit a motivated patient who's ready to start treatment. You know, one, it's going to decrease their potential for transmission. We know this is a period of very high rates of transmission because of acute infection. And now that we're in this exciting era where we're actually trying to potentially cure HIV infection, there's data to suggest earlier starts limit the size of the HIV reservoir, which is the largest barrier to cure. So I think that if you had a motivated patient, it would certainly be reasonable to talk about a strategic plan to start that day. Anyone say no or anyone have other comments to add to that? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think the key is uh, somebody getting a diagnosis of HIV, it it's, can be life-changing, 
and can create, as, as we know over the years, uh, can create a, a crisis and to be able to say to somebody, we've got really good treatment now, we can really control this, this is manageable, and to start that right away is a very powerful message. And there's increasing uh, experience so in San Francisco and Haiti. Uh, uh, there's some really good work going on. But again, not every clinic is equipped to do that because clear, clearly there's a lot of counseling that's going to go into both telling somebody you're, you're HIV infected and we're going to start your own treatment and getting somebody oriented. So uh, there has to be readiness of the patient part, but also the clinical environment as well. And I would just echo that. That's what it depends on. Is the patient really ready and can the system really support them? I, I think, uh, I'm not sure if you're going to ask us about what regimens we might choose here. You, you read my mind. <laughs> We're getting there. Okay. So uh, I, I won't go into that other than to say that there are regimens that would be safe to start even without having baseline creatinine and without having a genotype test. We can, we now have regimens that you could safely start. Great. Perfect. That's a good segue into the next couple of slides. And thank you for these questions. We're going to take, um, we should have about 15 minutes at the end and we'll go through as many as we can. So this is, I think, what, what we all feel, which is that delays in initiating ART can lead to clinical progression, but perhaps even more importantly can, in, in some instances, lead to disengagement from care and suboptimal outcomes. So groups have been asking, can you safely start ART on the same day, and does that improve outcomes? The San Francisco data that, that Ken Mayer mentioned is here. This was a small study, and it's not a clinical outcome study. It's 86 people who got referred to Zuckerberg General Hospital, San Francisco General Hospital, with recent infection. Uh, or CD4 counts that were low. About half of them went into the rapid group. Those folks started ART on the day of, of uh, diagnosis. And then the standard of care is what we have done in the past, which is waiting until about 21 days. That's, that was the median time to start ART. There was, this was not powered for clinical outcomes, but it just showed you the sooner you start, the sooner you suppress. The people who were in the rapid group had a median time of suppression of under two months, and the group that was in the standard group took, a, uh, took longer, of course, four months or so. This is the Haiti study that actually, in part, has influenced the WHO to move towards recommending earlier and earlier starting of ART, even on the same day. This was a randomized trial done in Haiti in Port-au-Prince. People who were CD4 count of, of uh, less than 500 couldn't have evidence of TB. The standard group started at day 21. The same-day group, of course, started on the day of diagnosis. And both groups had multiple visits for physician and social work counseling, so they had the same number of visits. This is how many people started ART, 100% in the same-day group, 92% in the standard group, alive and in care at one year, 80% um, in the same-day group, 71% in the standard. In care and with an HIV that's suppressed, a little over 50% in the uh, same-day group, 42% in standard. And here are the death data, uh, lower rates of death in the same-day group, 3% versus 7% in the um, standard group. Now, I, one question I had is how often, they started TDF, um, 3TC, and efavirenz. How often did they have to call someone back in for an abnormal lab because of uh, creatinine, for example? And it was about 4% of the same-day patients had to have a dose adjustment or a change based on an elevated creatinine, but it was fairly uncommon, and it could be done quickly. So I think, um, I think it depends. Um, Port-au-Prince is not um, Brooklyn or, or Boston. I mean, there are differences between uh, uh, different settings, so you do have to customize the system to really come up a way, with a way to start ART um, earlier. Um, I think we have to develop delivery systems, even in the Haiti study, which showed an outcomes benefit, 50% was in the same-day group um, were uh, suppressed, but the other 50% weren't in care. 
And then even if we don't start ART on the day of diagnosis, um, I think what these type of studies are pushing me to do is to try to get people on ART sooner and sooner, sooner not artificially or unnecessarily decay, uh, delay based on what I did five or six years ago or 10 years ago. So. Just to say there's a real push, as you know, from our New York City Department of Health to, to try to institute this in uh, the sexual health clinics in Great. town. Good to know. Perfect. So let's stay with the same scenario, same 29-year-old man. Um, the labs are pending. Uh, but what do you want to send uh, resistance-wise in addition to, so his labs include an HIV, RT, and protease uh, genotype. What other resistance tests would you order? Um, would you order an HIV integrase genotype, a trophile test, a, trophile D, uh, a proviral DNA test, a trophile DNA test? Would you order none of the above or all of the above in this person in whom you're thinking about same-day therapy? locked. Great suspense. Yeah, Is the it. poll not recording? Should we it says not maybe reset poll. the poll? Okay, same choices. Um, so the standard genotype is pending. Which of these would you send in addition? Uh, they're listed here. Uh, integrase, genotype, profile, proviral DNA, um, trophile DNA, none of the above or all of the above. Let's see if it's recording. Happy to do it by a show of hands if you need a bit. Okay, let's do it by a show of hands and then we'll get the system reset. So how many of you want to send an integrase genotype? It looks like... Can't say, more than 6%, maybe 25%. <laughs> Trophile DNA, if you want to know what his um, tropism is, proviral DNA. Good, there, there are no, no takers because he's got plenty of RNA, no needs, need to do a DNA. Trophile DNA, seems like none. None of the above. Okay, that's about half, or about the same number as the integrase, and all of the above, no takers. So what does our panel think? I would be fine with just what the initial labs. I'd, yeah. I'd say none of the above, because this is a treatment-naive individual, and the prevalence of circulating integrase uh, resistance is low. We're not thinking of putting the individual on Maravrox. I don't see the point of the trophile testing. Great. Okay. This is a fairly straightforward question. If there's anyone who disagrees, feel free to voice your disagreement. Otherwise, we'll we'll kind of go on. I don't disagree. Um, current guidelines say. Don't do it. Both the DHHS and the New York City guidelines recommend against integrase um, genotyping. The caveat to that is if he came in and said, my partner is on an integrase and has a detectable viral load, then I think you should do it. But short of that, I probably wouldn't. And the other tests, I think, don't make sense. Great. So this is a reminder in a newly diagnosed patient, send a genotype an RT and protease. What you heard before, here are some of the data that back it up. Um, these are both studies that were presented at CROI this year. So a CDC study of ART-naive patients, there was an overall rate of um, resistance, transmitted drug resistance of 18%, but the bulk of that was NNRTI resistance. 11.5% of that was NNRTI, and a little under 6% was uh, nucleoside resistance. PI resistance was 3.9%. 
The U.S. National HIV Surveillance System looked at integrase inhibitor resistance. The overall rate uh, was 0.4%, but transmitted integrase drug resistance was only two out of over 4,600. It was 0.04%, and even those mutations were ones that conferred high-level resistance to albitegravir and raltegravir, but low-level resistance to dalutegravir. So based on these type of data, a modeling group um, uh, uh, at Mass General did a, uh, a modeling study where they compared 96-week clinical outcomes and cost-effectiveness of integrase resistance testing in newly diagnosed patients, and they essentially concluded that integrase resistance testing was projected to result in worse outcomes. You might choose something that's less well-tolerated and was not cost-effective. So um, as Tripp said, the national guidelines and the New York State guidelines currently recommend what was, what was said. Can I just say one thing? Yeah, you know, we're New Yorkers, so we're used to being first in everything. And uh, the question is, when will yeah, the prevalence the become high enough in yeah. the community that we will need to start doing yeah. this? And it, we don't know. Yeah. And the good thing is, everybody's aware, New York State published the overall, or I guess New York City, published the overall suppression rate in our city based on 65,000 people on ART, and 85% were suppressed below detection. I mean, that's, that's an incredible number. That's so good. I guess we just don't know. And actually, the, what the wrong lesson from this would be is not to continue surveillance. We totally need to know surveillance, and we need to know regional surveillance as well. So. Yeah. Okay, so this is the question Trip wanted to be asked, which is, which regimen would you choose for same-day therapy in someone who you don't yet have a genotype back on, don't yet have a BUN creatinine, don't have other tests back. Would you choose Efavirenz TDF-FTC? Would you choose Ropivirine TAF-FTC? Boosted Darunavir FTC-TAF? Uh, Alvitegavir Cobacistat FTC-TAF? Dalutegavir FTC-TAF? Or Dalutegavir Abacavir 3TC? Hopefully our poll has been unlocked. Our polling system hopefully has not been hacked by any... <laughs> Russians. <laughs> it's working. It's working good. Looks like uh, about two-thirds like um, dalutegravir. Some like the convenience of the single pill combination of elvitegravir, FTC-TAP, and some like the, uh, presumably the genetic barrier of resistance of a, of a PI. Um, others like that. Uh, comments from our panel? I'm going to go first so it's easier, low-hanging fruit here, because <laughs> there's so many choices. I think it's almost easier to start with what not to start. So, you know, you don't want to start a regimen that you need the HLA B5701 test back on, so none of the abacavir containing regimens. Um, I also wasn't excited about the real pivarine based regimen just because we know that you can have transmitted NNRTI resistance. So, uh, but of the other ones, I, I thought there was maybe more than white, one right answer, so I'm going to let my co-panel people tell me <laughs> what the right ones are. Yeah, I, I agree, agree with Christine. Uh, you know, I think the only downside to the, um, um, TAF, FTC, and um, dolutegravir is two pills, you know, and, and Tripp raised the question about are two pills a disincentive, and that, that's why implicit in his earlier presentation why we think that the big tegravir uh, TAF, FTC regimen will be very popular coming down the pike, because then it would be one pill plus a non-boosted uh, integrase strand transfer inhibitor. Yeah. I, I agree. I, I think you don't want to use abacavir. You don't want to use TDF if you don't know the baseline labs. Um, and probably you don't want to use NN, 
any NNRTI because of the, as uh, Raj just showed us, about 12% resistance in the community. Um, that leaves us with a couple of the guidelines we have traditionally said use a boosted PI, so the darunavir regimen uh, looms large. Um, now the guidelines have added dolutegravir as well because of its high barrier to resistance. So I think those are both good choices. Can, can I ask a, a question to the panel, though? If this person had any uh, neuropsych issues, would that be a concern? Because there is some emerging literature about dolutegravir now. Still, still wouldn't prompt me to put him on in a favarins-based literature. Um, um, regimen, because the literature is certainly more robust regarding it, that. But. It's pretty controversial, this link, and, and Raj could comment too, but between integrase inhibitors and, and the CNS manifestations, if you go back to the original studies, it's, there's the same incidence in the placebo group. More recently, there's been more reports of this, whether that's selection bias. Uh, I, I don't think it's clear. Yeah, I don't the know. Bulk, bulk of those case series really come out of Europe, uh, Germany, and other places in Europe. And then the randomized trials, as Tripp said, they can't see a real signal uh, for dolutegravir versus, say, a, a PI. And when the um, FDA looked at a meta-analysis of a number of US-based observational and randomized cohorts, they, again, couldn't find a signal. At ID Week, there was an analysis. Um, presented that suggested there might be differences, but I, in my own personal experience, I think it can happen, but it's quite rare, and it wouldn't be enough to dissuade me from using all the And that meta-analysis they presented, they yeah. pooled they people pooled who people. were starting regimens for the first time where you might imagine that there might be some anxiety and apprehension yeah. versus people who were switching, and they just threw them all together. So it's so not crystal clear. Certainly you should warn them and, and have uh, pretty rapid follow-up to make sure that they're okay. So now let's give you the option. Um, this has been what I think our panelists said. And in this particular instance, it really is not a right answer. There's a couple of good choices. I think the dolutegravir or boosted darunavir are, are both good choices. Now let's go a year from now. It's 2018. Same question, same regimens. But now if bictegravir FTC-TAF is approved, which of these would you choose? Uh, go ahead and vote quickly. I think this will be a quick vote, maybe 10 seconds, and we'll see if the availability of another option has a, an effect. Okay. Wow. A lot of people like the, um, the, the uh, convenience of the single pill option if it were to be approved. I think some people might hold on to something that's more, that we have a lot of experience with, so it'll be an interesting conversation when that comes up. Okay, I think I'm gonna take us on to the next case. Um, these are data you've seen before from TRIP, so we'll skip this. So this is a patient from uh, Haiti that I saw, uh, this actually I saw a couple of years ago. This woman was on um, TDF-FTC efavirenz, had virologic suppression. She actually presented to our clinic with headache and a stiff neck and had a, uh, um, based on that, I actually sent her for a um, LP. Her LP showed a white cell count of 12. Uh, CSF viral load came back as 30,000. Then I thought, hmm, something's wrong with this picture. And I did a plasma viral load, and it was 60,000. She had stopped taking her meds, basically. So I discovered it in a rather roundabout way through an LP. <laughs> she uh, reported non-adherence with her ARVs. And when I did a genotype, she had the classic K103N. Are you telling us we should be evaluating non-adherence with LPs? <laughs> with LPs, that's one way. To... <laughs> she has not been non-adherent since, let me put it that way. So. So which would you prescribe? Um, and again, there's not a right answer. I'm, I'm doing this in part to, to bring up some recent data. So would you give a, a boosted PI to this lady with um, first-line NNRTI failure? A boosted PI, say boosted adizanivir with FTC-TDF, a boosted darunavir, uh, this time with cobacistat, a boosted lopinavir, uh, dolutegravir FTC-TAF, or alvitegravir cobacistat FTC-TAF? 
So please go ahead and vote. So as we use for less and less first line NNRTIs, although we'll see if that changes in the future, this is not as common, but um, the question is what is the best next regimen in someone who fails NNRTI? Okay, so it looks like a bit of a split this time. About half of you like the dog integrity regimen. People, some of you want the convenience of a single pill. Hopefully that'll make it less likely that, um, that you'll take a portion of the regimen, and then others like a boosted uh, protease inhibitor. Comments from the panel? I guess I'll jump in this time. The, uh, the classic approach to NNRTI failure would have been, back in the day, the third choice, TDF, FTC, and boosted lopinavir. But we know that boosted lopinavir is not particularly well tolerated, so people wouldn't probably go to that. You'd look for an alternative boosted PI. Again, you, she was on TDF-FTC and she was on TDF-3TC uh, and efavirenz yeah. and failed that. And all we saw was the K103N, That's but many of us are concerned that she could have an M184V that just didn't show. And that might uh, influence our choice of regimens here. So again, boosted PI is good. Um, Lopinavir we don't use today. Some would have picked out as anivir, but darunavir, TAF-FTC-darunavir would be the conservative best approach, I think, here. Many people are willing to go a step further today and say, even if she has the M184V, that the TAF-FTC-dolutegravir regimen would offer significant activity and that high barrier to resistance. Um, and be a good choice. I'm more concerned about the fifth option here, the combined uh, L-vitegravir-COBE regimen, because if she does have the M184V, L-vitegravir has a low barrier to resistance. We might be setting her up for failure again. And I guess the other thing to say is we need to explore why she experienced failure on her prior med. If it was convenience, then all these regimens are not great choices because she was on a one pill once a day regimen. But if it were side effects or some other reasons, we need to address those as well. Okay. So I, I'll pin myself down and say, I would assume that convenience remains a priority and I would go with the fourth choice, TAF, FTC, and dolutegravir rather than the darunavir choice. Okay. I agree. I'm getting some nods. Yeah. Good. That's fine. I agree. Yeah. Totally fine to agree with Tripulic, that's, that's permissible. <laughs> so I wanted to present this, these data because these are new. Uh, these are uh, data that was presented in Paris that looked at first-line NNRTI failure in a randomized control study. Now, this study was done in Africa. It's called Dawning. It compared um, uh, what was available, and it's still available in many parts of Africa, which is boosted lopinavir plus two nukes versus dolutegravir plus two nukes. Um, this was people who had failed uh, first-line NNRTI therapy, and the um, nukes that were selected were selected by the investigators. They had to have at least one fully active nuke. But these were the results that I thought were um, important to, to um, review. So in this randomized controlled trial, dolutegravir plus two nukes was superior to boosted lopinavir plus two nukes uh, based on a viral load less than 50 cutoff at week 24. You can see 82% in the dolutegravir group versus 69% uh, in the boosted lopinavir group. This was similar to, uh, regardless of what subgroup they looked at. So if the viral load was over or less than 100,000, if the CD4 count was over or less than 200, and if there was two or less than two active nukes getting to uh, some point, at some um, level, uh, TRIP's concerned about the M184. 
This was largely driven by virologic non-response. The virologic non-response rate um, in the dolutegravir group was only 12%, and it was 25% in uh, the boosted lopinavir group. No resistance emerged in the dolutegravir group. Some of the people in the boosted PI group did develop resistance. And of course, there were, not surprisingly, we, we know that boosted lopinavir is not well tolerated. There were few drug, fewer drug-related adverse events. So the question would be, is in, uh, with more tolerable protease inhibitors like boosted darunavir or adizanavir, would the difference have been as great? We, we don't know. This looked at boosted lopinavir. But at least that virologic non-response rate does um, show us that you can use a dolutegravir regimen in people with first-line and an RTA failure and have, expect to have very good results. So any comments uh, in light of that or anything else? Yeah, I would add? reinforce the second point you made. I'll, many of us thought, oh, dolutegravir plus two nukes would be reasonable to use, but these are the first data we've seen that it actually yeah. is a good choice in this group. The other thing to say is, not only did they find these results, but the Independent Data Safety Monitoring Board stopped the okay. study because the results were so different, significantly different between the two groups. So that, that's impressive, I think, too. Okay, so now let's go on. Now we're going to get into um, uh, a multi-drug resistant uh, patient and the issue of simplifying therapy. So this is a man I see who's 50 years old. He was diagnosed back in 1996. He had been on multiple previous regimens, boosted PI regimens, also efavirenz, TDF-FTC. And prior to um, starting the regimen he's on now, he had a genotype which showed multiple RT mutations, including M41L, L100I, K103N from his efavirenz, M184V from previous uh, 3TC-FTC use, L210W and uh, T215Y. He also had some protease gene mutations, uh, 36L, 60E, and 63P, the last of which is a polymorphism. I got him suppressed on a um, kind of a modified trio regimen. This is boosted darunavir. Instead of raltegravir, we used dolutegravir and etravirine. But this was five pills a day, and he asked me about a year ago, can I be on a simpler regimen? Can I ha have fewer than five pills a day? So would you switch this man with this, uh, his, he's now suppressed, to raltegravir FTC TAF, ropivirine FTC TAF, Okay, so we're going to do it the old-fashioned way. We're going to. That's fine. That's fine. If you vote and you can't see the results, have you still voted? <laughs> kind of like let's, the let's, last election. Right. Right? Let's do the hands. Like we can do it. Raltegravir, FTC, TAF. How many would would like that option? A few. Ropivirine, FTC, TAF. Boosted darunavir plus FTC, TAF. Alvitegavir, cobacistat, FTC, TAF, plus darunavir. Okay, here we're getting some hands. Dalutegavir, FTC, TAF, a few. No simpler regimen. He's, he's suppressed. Um, don't switch. Okay. Uh, people are, are slightly hesitant to vote, but I think I, I got the sense that number four, number six, number five, those are what people are, are giving some votes to. Any comments from our panel? 
So I can jump in on this one. Um, it's a hard question, and it comes to me all the time because I'm often um, doing pre-transplant evaluations for patients who are on these older regimens with lots of resistance, and I want to try to get them on a PI sparing or a pharmacoenhancer sparing regimen. So I am really interested in how the dolutegravir-TAF um, FTC regimen will hold up, and I think there's a little bit of data on that. I always have to email Joel Gallant to look at the mutations in the subgroup analysis of that trial, um, but I don't think there's enough data to support that approach yet. It's a little bit too bold, um, but I do know there was a study of the, um, the Elvitegravir-Kobe um, TAF, FTC, sorry, I can't say any of the trade names, plus the boosted Dibrunavir, which did show good efficacy even in patients with up to um, three thymidine analog um, resistance mutations, which this gentleman has acquired. So I think that would be a good answer. Any disagreement or? No, I, I agree. I mean, there's not a lot of data, and uh, some of the data is not exactly uh, speaking to the this, this situation, but, but there certainly are data that even switching people who are stably suppressed to something as simple as dolutegravir plus 3TC uh, is a viable strategy as well, some er, er, early data. So, so I, I would go with the dolutegravir F, F, um, TAF um, FTC. I, I'm a little more concerned about that. Um, we know that he has few protease inhibitor mutations, so the darunavir is, is a major player in his regimen. So I was leaning towards regimens that included that. Um, one thing you don't want to do is screw things up here, <laughs> right? So I think uh, some of the choices that you gave us would actually be wrong. You, you, we know he has significant nuke resistance, and uh, you don't want to pair nukes where there is resistance with drugs with low barriers to resistance. So I think that's a mistake. Um, I assume you're going to show us the data on choice number four, which surprised some people that you can actually uh, convert a, a more complicated uh, regimen into a simpler regimen for someone with lots of resistance. Um, choice number five, you know, you're rolling the dice just a little bit. bit. You'll probably be okay, but... And I have done that with my patients pre-transplant. I just monitor them very closely, but I have been as aggressive as Ken was suggesting, so I'm hoping we get more data there. So this person didn't face the, the rigors of what Christine does, which is transplant, so we ended up um, switching him to number four, and these are the data that supported that. These were presented at ID Week a couple of years ago and published earlier this year. These took people who were suppressed already on um, a... Um, usually on a darunavir-containing regimen. In fact, that's what was the inclusion criteria. They had to be suppressed for four months or more, and they couldn't have more than three nucleoside resistance mutations, or TAMs, and they, uh, they could have the K65R. They couldn't have integrase resistance, and they couldn't have any of the multi-nucleoside resistance mutations. They got randomized. This was about 120 or so people, um, and they were randomized two to one to get L-vitegravir-cobacis at FTC-TAF plus darunavir, and they worked out some of the pharmacokinetics to, to see that the cobacis that was boosting the darunavir or to continue their baseline regimen. This was a two-pill-a-day regimen, and they had good results. These are basically the, the week 24 and the week 48 results, and you can see in purple the group that went down to two pills a day had good 94% um, suppression rates, even better than the people who stayed on their baseline regimen. So that's what we ended up doing, in part because we weren't as worried about um, needing to be on uh, a non-PI regimen. Um, I think in this particular instance, the 41, the um, uh, 210, and the 215, those are the TAM1 pathway. So there is somewhat of an effect on um, 
on uh, tenofovir, more so than if he had had the TAM2 pathway. So I think I would go with the more conservative uh, regimen as, as well. So. Was he happy about the change? He is very happy, yeah. He's very happy about the change. From the earlier study that you cited, um, did they look at, um, did they describe the patterns of the protease uh, resistance mutations? So that's what made me a little uneasy about him yeah. being on darunavir. I realized that the current, the current um, you know, mutations would, would not uh, inactivate uh, darunavir, but the that's question right. is if, um, if any he had been, kind of yeah. accumulation, you know. So he did not have any of the classic darunavir-associated mutations, and you're right. This particular study took people out if they, were, if they had a classic darunavir-resistant mutation. But these particular ones, and I looked it up on the Stanford database, did not affect uh, darunavir. Okay, so I think um, Ken is interested in this topic, so we'll get into it. This is a 50-year-old man with HIV, diabetes, hypertension, chronic renal insufficiency. His creatinine clearance is less than 25, okay? It's actually 25, but it's less than 30. HIV RNA is not super high, it's 30,000. His CD4 count is not super low, it's 450. He is B5701 positive, and you want to choose a regimen now that avoids TAF, TDF, and abacavir. So I'm gonna ask two questions, and then we'll see what our panel thinks. So for which of these regimens is there phase three clinical trials data that support using a nuke limiting or nuke light regimen? So is there phase three data on boosted darunavir? Oh, the, the Wi-Fi is working. Oh, good. Okay. So I'll read, I'll read the, um, oh, I won't read the questions. So I'm gonna ask you in a moment, which um, of the regimens is there data for, phase three data, and then I'm gonna ask you which you would use in this person. So we'll see if there's, so for which of these, uh, Regiments um, are there data saying that that it works as well as three drug therapy or, or nu two nukes and a third drug? Boosted darunavir uh, plus FTC. Boosted ritonavir boosted darunavir plus raltegravir. Ritonavir boosted darunavir plus dolutegravir. Ritonavir boosted darunavir plus 3TC. The two drug regimen that, that Ken just mentioned, dolutegravir plus 3TC. Now this is for initial therapy, or dolutegravir plus rilpivirine. You said phase three. Data. Phase three data. What do we know? What what would the guidelines say that there's <laughs> phase three data on? So let's see what people think, and I'll ask my pa the panel afterwards. So remember your thoughts on this one. Let's see what people think. Okay, so here there's a mix. So some people um, call out the the boosted darunavir plus dolutegravir, and um, other talk about dolutegravir plus rilpivir. So here's a mix. We have people thinking about all of these options. So now let's hold this thought. Which of these would you give to this patient? So remember, this person is uh, got a CD4 count of 450, viral load of 30,000, creatinine clearance of 25. He is B5701 positive, same choices. Which of these would you give for initial therapy? And it, it may be the same choice that you had before. Okay, so it looks like people like the boosted darunavir dolutegravir option for initial therapy. So what, is our, what do our panel think? What are their phase three clinical trials data for and what would you use? That doesn't <laughs> imply that you would use something different, but what, what, do, you, what do you think? 
Trip, trip I would looks choose, like he wants to. I would choose what the audience chose here, the boosted Darunavir and Dalyutegavir, but there are not phase three data to support that choice. Yeah. So yeah. we're picking that out here as picking two drugs that we know um, are highly effective and we're extrapolating and guessing that if you put them together that they would work. Right. Um, so I do agree with the audience there. Uh, one of the problems with 3TC or FTC is his creatinine clearance of 25. So the um, package insert says you do have to adjust the dose based on the low creatinine clearance. So that would complicate each of those regimens. Some people like dolutegravir with ropivirine. Avoid all the nukes. Um, what are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is clinical trials data. Um, well, actually, it's, oh, gosh, I don't know. I have an issue just because of the role pivoting, but I think there is data to support the activity of that regimen. So this is becoming a, a hot topic, to kind of nuke light regimens. Mm -hmm. Any comments on beyond what we've heard? It doesn't have to be if you don't. Well, the dolutegravir 3TC is something that has been used, but that's when people are initially suppressed, and then to, for simplification regimens. So we don't have, we don't have data in this situation where, uh, you know, for initiation, um, you know, so, so I think it would be kind of um, a leap of faith to do, to do that. There is pilot data right. for that combination. The paddle study from Argentina, which was small, only 20, and then the ACTG 5353 study, which is 120 people. Both those studies showed over 90% suppression rates, but they're pilots. So this is an area that I think I would ask people to keep their eye on. This is a rapidly evolving area, the whole area of uh, no nukes, or um, in some instances, few nukes. So what, what there are data on is really just these two, okay? The Gardell regimen in phase three clinical trials works, uh, comparable to two nukes plus boosted lopinavir, but who wants to use boosted lopinavir anymore? It's just too toxic. The NEAT001 regimen, there are phase three clinical trials data. That is boosted darunavir plus raltegravir not dolutegravir, but plus raltegravir, did not work well at the extremes. So at CD4 counts less than 200 or viral load greater than 100,000, it was not as good as two nukes plus um, boosted darunavir, but this guy is kind of in the middle. So it's interesting that I think all of um, our panelists and most of us would use something other than what those phase three clinical trials data for. The DHHS guidelines recently debated this point, and if you look at the guidelines that were put out last week, they still recommend these four nuke light regimens, but they put up the fact that there are emerging data, not yet recommended, because they're not phase three trials, for dolutegravir plus 3TC. As Tripp said, the paddle studies supported this regimen for initial therapy, but it was small. It was only in 20 people, and they had to have a baseline viral load of less than 100,000. And then the study that Tripp and Baba Femi Taiwo led, um, a single arm study that the ACTG did, this was a bigger study, 120 people, this time they let the viral load go all the way up to 500,000 in terms of inclusion, and they had great results. 90% viral suppression rate didn't matter if the viral load was less than or greater than 100,000. There were three virologic failures in this pilot study, all of whom in, occurred in people with suboptimal adherence. One person had um, emergence of an integrase inhibitor mutation, and so we will see. Uh, there's two big fully enrolled phase three clinical trials called Gemini 1 and 2 that are comparing dolutegravir 3TC versus um, three-drug therapy, and we will see uh, where that shakes out. 
And just um, to make one quick comment yeah, on that regimen, I, this is my first IASUSA panel, so I'm not yeah. sure if I'm allowed to say anything <laughs> against the package insert, but 3TC is a very, very safe drug. There are different formulations you can easily get for, for example, people who have hepatitis B, but you, you can sort of safely give higher doses, and we do this. I, I really like that light regimen, especially for patients on dialysis or transplant recipients. So I don't think the dosing is a big challenge with that regimen. I'm very hopeful about that paddle data going forward. Yeah, and that's, okay. that's a good point, yeah. If you can go back one slide. Yeah. Well, one of the puzzling things in our field is why didn't boosted darunavir plus raltegravir work as better than it did. As Raj says, it, it fell off with CD4s less than 200 or viral loads greater than 100,000. And I don't know that we know the answer. Raltegravir was given twice a day with this regimen, and darunavir was given once a day. So whether people were missing intermittent doses is not crystal clear. I think all of us in the audience hoped that if you gave once a day boosted darunavir plus dolutegravir, that that would work well. But we're I, I think there's some pilot data yes. that just emerged, but not much more than that. Right. And so for the first time, really, the DHHS guidelines has a category. It says these are things that are under investigation, not yet there, but many experts, they say, might consider these. Um, the other one to keep your eye on, this is a little earlier. This is boosted darunavir plus 3TC. This was the ANDI study. It was presented in Paris this year. Um, this compared boosted darunavir 3TC to um, TDF, F, uh, 3TC, and boosted darunavir. In Argentina, apparently, where this was done, you can get boosted darunavir with ritonavir boosted darunavir in a single pill. They presented uh, week 24 data at a viral load cutoff of less than 400. Excellent results, 95 to 97% suppression in both the two-drug therapy as well as the three-drug therapy. They're going out to week 48. Uh, they're going to report out viral loads less than 50, and they're going to add another 190 people to their trial to get, make it fully powered. So something to, to watch out for. Raj, one thing that troubled me about this study was the less than 50 data. Yeah. So although the less than 400 is, as you say there, yeah. the less than 50 data, numerically, there were differences disfavoring. Right, and I think they didn't dwell on that, and I yeah, think it's something, <laughs> something that we have to watch, especially out to week 48. I want to make one point. If you have someone suppressed, about 20% of you talked about dolutegravir and if you have someone suppressed already, you've got many more options for nuclide regimens. All of these boosted PIs plus 3TC or FTC, they look good once people are suppressed. Um, uh, there are um, uh, the SWORD study, which we're going to come back to on the next slide, that's the dolutegravir data. That is for treatment. Um, People, that's for maintenance there, people who are already suppressed. And then there's a bunch of uh, regimens that are in, um, uh, in trials, including the one that Tripp mentioned of cabotegravir, ropivirin, which I won't talk about. But these are the SWORD data. I want to stress this for a moment. In people who are suppressed, they were randomized um, to receive either dolutegravir, ropivirin, no nukes, or continue their antiretroviral regimen. These people had no prior history of virologic failure, and they were on their first or second line regimen. Excellent results, 95% suppression rates in both the two-nuke arm, I'm sorry, the nuke-free arm or the uh, two nukes and, um, and a third drug, and it was non-inferior to continuing antiretroviral therapy. This particular combination has um, uh, been in front of the FDA with a single pill regimen. I keep getting emails almost on a daily basis saying <laughs> that it's coming soon. So you're likely to see this uh, be available. Remember, though, of course, you have to take the same precautions that you do with any ropivirine regimen, uh, no acid lowering, uh, no PPIs, 
careful about acid-lowering therapy and watch that uh, calorie intake. So has to be taken with a full meal. 400 calories. Not just yeah. a protein drink. Yeah. But that particular regimen I would not use. There's not enough data to use it for initial therapy. They studied it in SWITCH. See, speaking of switch, we're now going to move on to a completely um, different topic, and, and I want to get your thoughts on, on this complication. So this is a 40-year-old man, and there's actually two cases that have the same theme. 40-year-old man with well-controlled HIV on the back of your 3TC dolutegravir. He presents with six days of abdominal cramping and diarrhea. He's got one to three bowel movements per day throughout the day and night. He's got some blood on the toilet paper, but no blood in the stool. He's got some mild chills, a temperature of 100.7. He had traveled to Cape Cod, eaten cook, ate at cookouts, had salads, had mayonnaise. He had three new sexual, male sexual partners, had oral anal stimulation. And so you send a stool culture and you get this. Okay, so he's got Shigella, Sonii. Result called to your care unit and or MD. Would you treat this patient? Let's go ahead and vote. Yes, no, or only if he doesn't improve. And you're going to get one more chance to vote on a second case. So it looks like 80% of you want to treat this person. What does our panel think? Uh, definitely would treat uh, shigellosis, yeah. Um, it's nasty. It's not going to clear by itself. Salmonella is a diff different, different story. Other comments? I'm going to concur with that. Okay. Okay. So, let me present um, the resistance data that came back, okay? So this patient's um, resistance data from the Shigellasonii, he has um, resistance to ampicillin, he's got resistance to azithromycin, he's got resistance to ciprofloxacin, and he's got resistance to trimethoprim sulfa, okay? So let me present to you another case. This is a, these are all within the last couple of months in, in and around Boston. 50-year-old HIV-negative MSM on PrEP, presents with four days of watery diarrhea, abdominal cramping, no blood in the stool, no fevers, chills, had oral anal uh, contact recently. This time the culture comes back as Shigella flexneri. This is the resistance test. You can't see this, but I'm gonna read it out. His ampicillin is resistant. His Cipro says no interpretation. I'm gonna ask if our panel if they've seen this before. 0.12 is the MIC, and the trimethoprim sulfa is susceptible. How would you treat this patient? Would you give them oral Cipro, oral trimethoprim sulfa, no treatment, or admit him or give him IV ceftriaxone? Okay, so about half of you, a little over half of you like the um, trimethoprim sulfa. Now we're getting a few going for no treatment, some for Cipro uh, and some for ceftriaxone. So, so a good mix. So what is our panel think? Um, I would do trimethoprim sulfa. Uh, he doesn't seem that sick. He's taking PO. Um, you know, there's no suggestion of a systemic infection for this one. For the other one, I think you were s stuck with IV ceftriaxone just because it's so multi-drug resistant. Right. Other comments? Well, I'll agree with the New Yorkers because I know it's good <laughs> to agree with a New Yorker. Uh, That's a No, no, but the audience, oh, the okay. audience has said that. But I feel like there's something funny going okay, on here there, that Raj is going to trick us with. There is something funny going on. That has to do with prep and bloody <laughs> diarrhea. Yeah, so, yeah. so Christina tell us knows more. me. So this is what's funny. So this person, this is what our lab uh, puts in the fine print, and you can't read this, but what the fine print says is. When antibiotic therapy is indicated for treatment of Shigella, 
The CDC recommends avoiding fluoroquinolones if the Cipro MIC of, is 0.12, okay? So that seems a very arcane, but this is what I want to stress. So this part you probably won't be surprised about. There are outbreaks of antibiotic-resistant Shigella, um, uh, it's particularly in MSM. There were seven outbreaks reported between 2011 and 2015. So that first patient I showed you with the multidrug-resistant um, Shigella, that, he's an example. Six of those seven outbreaks um, involved um, uh, uh, MSM predominantly, and three of them had multidrug resistance of the short, short that, sort that I showed you. Here in New York City, 20% uh, of Shigella isolates tested between 2013 and 2015 had decreased azithromycin susceptibility, and this was almost exclusively among MSM, most of whom were affected with HIV. So this is what I wanted to stress. This is, these are recent guidances from the CDC that came out in April of this year. So forever, we've treated Shigella. I mean, that's what we do. As Ken said, we treat Shigella. But this is what the CDC is warning us about as of April. They said, the re, uh, current CSLI criteria categorized Shigella isolates with a Cipro MIC of less than or equal to one as susceptible. Okay, so that's what has been called Cipro-susceptible Shigella. But what they put in this MMWR is that there's been an increase in Shigella isolates that have a kind of an intermediate MIC of 0.12 to 1. And this is resulting, this is going to lead up to their guidance in a moment. This rising MIC may be related to plasma-mediated quinolone resistance genes. So these genes have been found in outbreaks of multidrug-resistant Shigella flexneri, uh, many in MSM, and sporadic cases of Sonii. So we don't know, they don't know, and we don't know, if you use uh, fluoroquinolone in someone who's got a Cipro MIC of 0.12 to 1, we don't know if it, if it works, we don't know if it makes things worse, we don't know if it makes things like they do in Salmonella, people carry it longer, they, they don't know. So what they um, comment on is in Salmonella, if you've got an MIC of 0.12 to 1, it is clear that you shouldn't use a fluoroquinolone for Salmonella. Shigella is, a, is an unknown. So this is how they conclude. They say, if you suspect Shigella, order stool culture, confirm that your lab tests Cipro dilutions, that they give you an MIC, because if it comes back in the old days, if it was anything below 1, they'd call it susceptible. As of April, if it's between 0.12 and 1, there's uncertainty as to what to do. Management, and this is the sea change, okay? I found this to be a big deal. They say in uh, Shigella, avoid antibiotics except in those with severe illness and those at risk for systemic infection. That's kind of the Salmonella guidelines. They're saying apply those same guidelines to Shigella. And they also go on to say where antibiotics are indicated, so you've got an immunocompromised patient or they're very, very sick, um, you need to treat them. Avoid a fluoroquinolone. Even if your lab says it's um, sensitive, you have to make sure that they're testing the MIC. And if they're not testing the MIC, ask them for it. Because if you're in that middle range, um, Cipro may not work. And then counsel patients to wait to have sex for two weeks after diarrhea resolves. So I brought these cases because we've had five of them in the last month or two. Uh, four of them were high-level drug resistance. Um, in one instance, we um, did treat with suffixing because it kept going and going and going. But in the other three cases, we elected not to treat because they were multidrug resistant and they fully resolved eventually. And then we had one that had this intermediate Cipro MIC, the one I showed you, um, and we elected not to treat that person and he also got better. So something that, that I think is a change in our, what we've gotten used to, which is you treat Shigella, I think the CDC is now saying, take a step back, look at the patient, see if they're uh, ill enough to warrant treatment, 
and, and think, think about the MIC for Cipra. So. I have a minute left. I do have one prep case. We have 15 minutes built in, right, for questions? Yeah. Let me do this. Let me, Go ahead. let me do the prep. There's a pair of prep cases. Ken's um, looking excited. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do the t pair of prep cases, and then I'll leave the surprise for, for later. We probably won't have time for the, the last case. So this is a man, and this comes up all the time, I think. A man in his 50s on TDF-FTC for PrEP. Um, his baseline creatinine before PrEP is uh, 1.02. A month later after starting TDF-FTC, his um, cre serum creatinine is 1.11. And then six months later, it's 1.32. And your lab calculator says his EGFR is 57. He's got hypertension, he's got gout, he's, got, um, he's on allopurinol, lisinopril, amlodipine, and, and PrEP. He's MSM, he's got uh, multiple partners, but he knows all of them, no illicit drug use, no excessive alcohol use. His blood pressure is a little high, uh, normal exam. This is a patient that we are deciding what to do now, um, so I'm gonna look for people's guidance. So his serum creatinine is 1.32. His serum phosphate is 1.7. He doesn't have glucosuria, doesn't have hematuria, doesn't have pyuria. His creatinine, a protein to creatinine ratio, his albumin to creatinine ratio are fine. He does, however, have a urine phosphate that's, that's 62. His urine creatinine is 186, and his fractional excretion of phosphate, FIFO, is 22%. So what would you do? Would you stop the TDF-FTC? Would you change TDF-FTC to TAF-FTC? Would you change TDF-FTC to Maraviroc? Would you continue the PrEP? with TDF-FTC, or would you do something else? And if you say something else, you have to, at least our panel has to say what it is. Okay, good. So this is a, um, a controversial choice. Dan, can you clear up the controversy? Yeah, it's, so um, very interesting that people talked about switching to TAF. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have data about the efficacy of TAF for PrEP. Uh, and I'm stealing thunder from later this af afternoon, but, but basically um, there is a reason why you'd be concerned that TAF might not be the best PrEP drug, even though it looks great for treatment. It preferentially uh, concentrates in CD4-bearing cells, but it also means that uh, in human studies they found relatively low concentrations in uh, rectal and in cervicovaginal secretions. And that's the debate. Where do you need to have the drug for protection as opposed to treatment? It may be a perfectly good drug, and there's actually a head-to-head -head study that's now fully enrolled, the Discover study, that's enrolled uh, uh, over 5,000 uh, part participants. So we'll, we'll get an answer, but we don't have it yet. So I would not say um, switch to um, TAF-FTC. I think I would uh, hold the PrEP uh, because he's um, creatinine clearance is below 60, uh, and that is the CDC guidance, uh, th that threshold. Uh, hopefully, one could ameliorate, uh, um, you know, his uh, renal function by better control of his hypertension. Looking at his other meds that might that might be um, affecting his kidneys and um, monitoring very closely. It's it's scary. We don't want him to become HIV infected, but uh, certainly don't want to exacerbate um, his renal problems. In the vast majority of people in the prep trials who had uh, changes in creatinine while on uh, TDF-FTC. Uh, after the medication was held and things were ameliorated, they tended to uh, be able to tolerate uh, going back on uh, TDF-FTC. So that, that would be my, my preference. Just to add that the, he's in his 50s, so the studies didn't have a lot of men in their 50s, and he does have baseline hypertension, so he has another reason to have renal insufficiency. Um, 
certainly you could stop. Two other options that you have, one would be to go to every other day TDF-FTC and watch them closely. And then a third would be, um, and I'd be interested in your opinion on this, is to go to the event-driven. The on-demand. Yeah. And I think Ken is going to talk about that this well, afternoon. So well, since, you can tell since, us your opinion since, and then get the data this afternoon because he will. Uh, just he to will, define what that means. Yeah. That's from the hypergay study. And so it's linked to sex. And so you take two TDFFTCs uh, within two to 24 hours prior to sex, one the day after, and a second two days after. And it's only related, you'd need to talk to him, well, how much sex are you having? Right. To figure out how many times, how many TDF-FTCs he would take. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the challenge. Uh, th that protocol um, excluded people who had uh, impairments in, uh, in renal function. So, so we don't have data of event-driven prep in somebody in this situation uh, with uh, decreased uh, creatinine clearance. And you're double dosing, which is not, not the best thing for, for the kidneys, uh, but if you're doing that infrequently, you probably could get away with it. So understanding his pattern of, of sex and his pattern of pill taking might, might be important, but you're definitely going out on, on a limb if you do that. There's just no data yet uh, in that the, situation. The average number of doses taken, I think, was 15, right? 15 so per month. Yeah. So 15 per month. So you really are reducing the number of pills or the, the exposure to TDF FTC over the course of a month. They had some data that was interesting in Paris where they looked at people who had less sex, um, and I think they took an average of like six. They, well, they, they were yeah. six episodes, and, and they and they were protected. So uh, you know, but it, the numbers were small. I mean, the person years of follow up was 150 uh, person years follow up total. So we don't know if you had more people. If some people might might break through if you're taking that at frequent regimen. But it looks good. It's just we don't have the, we don't have data on impact on renal function. People who have renal insufficiency, uh, renal function was just fine in the people in the hypergase study. So certainly, if you start off with normal renal function, you do well when you are on this uh, on-demand uh, regimen. The double dose didn't seem to cause any problems for anybody um, in, in in that that study. So stay till the end because Ken is going to go into this in more detail in his very final final talk. Let me, because of time, I'm, uh, Ken and others have made this point. So we're still deciding what to do. We held his TDF-FTC, but we are intending to, to restart it. But I want to finish with this case, and I probably won't ask you to vote. This is more just to, to make one of the points that was stressed. So this is a man in his 20s who's MSM. He's on TDF-FTC prep, uh, for prep for about two months. About a month after a starting prep, he developed a rash that I'm going to show you. These were erythematous papular lesions in his web space and dorsum of the hand. He got treated by his uh, PCP for scabies, but no, didn't have an improvement. The rash actually spread to involve his trunk and legs, and he got treated with steroids, and then got referred to dermatology. And he had these circular, red-pink, shallowly eroded plaques on his arms, his hands, and his upper legs, overlying fine scale and crust. And they did a biopsy that showed sponge, uh, spongiotic dermatitis. So this is his rash. Um, it's on his uh, finger which you can see there. And then this, these are his two forearms, and you can see this rash uh, present on, on both of his arms, and it was present in other parts of his extremities as well. So um, because of time, th these are the same choices I gave you uh, before. We um, know not to switch to TAF-FTC. We don't know that that works. And similarly, the other options um, weren't considered. So what they did, and let's go ahead and, for time, go ahead and show the next slide, please. We're not going to vote on this one. So this is the follow-up. So the TDF-FTC was stopped. They were quite worried about a cutaneous reaction. He was in a relationship, but not always monogamous. 
about a year later, um, he actually represented to care, and he was now HIV positive with an antigen antibody test that was positive and a viral load, this 50,000 CD4 count of 500. And so this is the question that we'll finish with. What regimen would you start him on? And then I'll give you a couple of summation points. Would you start him on a, a Bacavir-containing regimen, a TAF-containing regimen, a TDF-containing regimen, a nuke-limiting regimen, or something else? Go ahead and give us your thoughts. He, I, I will tell you, he had no resistance. So most people would favor an abacavir-containing regimen, and I have to say that's, I think, what I would have uh, favored as well, and some would have given him TAF or TDF or something else. In the interest of time, what I'll tell you is that this patient was started um, on um, TAF-FTC dolutegavir, and his rash uh, did not recur. So um, I, let me finish with my final points. Whether to treat elite controllers, so this is a summation of what we've talked about. Whether to treat elite controllers is uncertain. I think you can make a case, and many of you are doing that. And newly diagnosed patients initiate ART as soon as the person is ready. I think that was the point made by our panel, uh, same day if possible. In a patient with first-line NNRTI failure, there are um, good data now that dolutegavir-based regimens um, uh, look good, and in one instance was superior to a PI-based regimen. Simplifying ART is often possible, even in those with multidrug resistance. There are new CDC guidance on diagnosing and managing Shigella at this point. In patients who discontinue PrEP because of toxicity, extra counseling, especially close follow-up, are critical, and I really hope Ken will uh, talk about some of that when he talks this afternoon. So with that, I'm going to conclude. I will take a few questions, but let's see if there's any final comments from our panel. And I'll, I think we have five minutes for questions. Is that right? We've got five. Panelists, any last comments before we take some questions? So a lot of good questions, and I'm going to stay up here afterwards if people want to come up for those that we don't get to. It seems like the, most of the questions had to do with that first case, and I'll, I'll read these out loud and uh, put it to the panel. So one question is, in someone who is an elite controller or an intermittent low viremia, would you do a proviral DNA uh, before starting therapy? Um, Trip, would you do a proviral DNA to look for resistance in someone like the patient I presented, or would you just go ahead and, and start? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess you could. If I probably wouldn't recommend it routinely. We still don't know the clinical efficacy of that. I, I guess what you're getting at is could an elite controller have been infected with a drug-resistant virus, and we just don't know it. Yeah. I, I think that's an uncommon situation. I probably wouldn't do it. I think you also probably just need less antiretroviral drugs to suppress someone whose viral load is only 100. So even if there was some resistance, That's I think, I mean, I'd still start a standard um, guideline recommended regimen in these patients, but you probably don't need to get five logs of inhibition of viral replication to suppress a lead controller. That's interesting. Would you worry about intermittent adherence in elite controllers? And a, kind of a corollary to that is if you have someone who's an elite controller who goes on ART, and then stops, will they lose their elite control? Does their immune system kind of go to sleep and, and won't control them anymore? That was Do we a, know anything about yes, that? Yes, that, that was has, a fear. That can happen. So yeah. we've had um, a couple of uh, elite suppressors who were put on ART because they were going to get chemotherapy, and later on they did lose control. So I know there's at least one to two case reports in the literature. I believe Joel Blankson published one. Where they lost elite control. Where they did, yeah. yes. I've been telling people and there are some data that uh, patients who are elite controllers who go on ART when they stop ART have retained elite control, but I guess they're, I, I did not know about that case. That's interesting. Uh, of uh, course, they had cancer or something, so you don't. 
right one and necessarily sounds, re oh, that's right. the sounds more complicated. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure it could go either way. One clarifying question, if same day initiation of ART, if we're moving towards that, are we gonna forego the ability to identify leak controllers? Here the um, clarifying point is that you still check the HIV RNA and, and, um, and obviously if their viral load comes back very, very low, uh, that might influence your decision. I think ra rather than waiting for the three to six months though that it takes for the viral load to settle down to a set point, I think that is true. We are gonna not let people go three to six months generally before starting ART. Um, the, um, this is, a, uh, I think, a statement, but one that I take very seriously. HIV is more serious than renal insufficiency in MSM with a history of hypertension. Continue Truvada in real life. Ken, what would your threshold be for, for stopping Truvada? Did you, you said 60, is that? Is that well, what you well would do? again, you know, I think what's important is to know the guidelines and then as clinicians you have to make your best judgment. If, if this is somebody who you think is highly adherent to PrEP and highly likely to become HIV infected, uh, that, that's a, a trade-off. Obviously, uh, their renal function needs to be very carefully monitored. The question is, could you do a hiatus and, and st stop and negotiate with that person that for that period of time while you're watching their creatinine? Um, and trying to tweak uh, the management of the hypertension, for example, would they be in a situation where they'd be likely to become infectious? So that's, that's where I think a lot of clinical decision-making and, and conversation with the patient is, is key. Because in the clinical trials, the vast majority of people who had creatinine <coughs> elevations um, um, who were rechallenged with the TDFFTC did not have creatinine elevations subsequently. So, so I think if, if you can ameliorate uh, the reasons for the change in creatinine, that's important because you certainly don't want to be continuing TDF-FTC if the creatinine is continuing to, uh, to get worse. But again, <clears throat> most of those men were young without comorbidities. So. Yes. Yep. And there are data that people over the age of 40 and people whose EGFR is less than 90 have a bit higher risk. So I'll yep. um, finish with this last uh, question, two questions which are both brief. This is about Genvoia, Stribal. The package insert says not to combine a protease inhibitor with, with, with um, the TDF version of uh, Alvitegavir-Cobi. That is absolutely true. So shouldn't add Darunivir to the TDF version, but the TAF version, the, the data I showed you from that trial, they did work out the pharmacokinetics and the cobacistat in that is sufficient to, to boost Darunivir. So that was one of the clarifying points. Before that study, we were a little worried about whether the Cobi was enough to boost Darunivir that particular study supported it. And then the last question is, should we even be obtaining an HIV genotype at all if we're beginning right, uh, right away? At ID Week, that actually became a, a point of discussion. Um, uh, there are data that NNRTI resistance does not have a substantial effect if you're starting an integrase inhibitor, of course, because you're, you're not using an NNRTI. Um, Many of us still do the genotype, and when it comes back, we will take it into account when we're adjusting our regimen. So I'm not yet, I have not yet stopped ordering genotypes, but I think it's fair to, to start a dolutegravir regimen or a boosted darunavir regimen while you're waiting for those results to come back. And in many places, it'll come back in one or two weeks. It depends on your institution. Yeah, and I think you'd want to know if there were resistance exactly. mutations yeah. down the road, even exactly. if it doesn't influence your first regimen. So uh, I'm going to stay up here for any of you who we didn't get to answer your questions. I want to thank our panel for a very uh, uh, good and uh, provocative discussion.